I use it. Uh, I actually think I'm maybe possessed with demons. Uh, I was dropping my head when I was a kid. Uh, I talked to some uh, theological Christian people, and some of those people are really strong. They actually think, well, the Bible says that, that there's demons and, and, uh, within you or can come into you. Uh, that's the only thing I can figure out. I have, you know, you know, something drove me to do this. You know, the normal people just don't do this. You can't stop it. I can't stop it. It's just, it controls me. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's like it's in the driver's seat. So, this is the story of Dennis Rader and when he was caught with Kenneth Landwehr. So, in talking to Ken Landwehr, um, and let's let's talk, let's dive into a little bit about Ken Landwehr for people who aren't aware of who Kenneth Landwehr is. Lieutenant Ken Landwehr was a homicide detective in Wichita, Kansas, and he played a pivotal role in the capture of BTK. Um, he had passed away a few years ago due to kidney cancer. Um, and at the time, our city's mayor, Carl Brewer, and Carl Brewer actually had a family attachment to another horrific case we're going to cover uh, here later on, uh, the case of Lucas Hernandez. But for right now, we're focusing on Dennis Rader. But Carl Brewer had labeled Lieutenant Landwehr the Dick Tracy of Wichita, and he truly was. Uh, Lieutenant Landwehr was just... Uh, an awesome man. He had these gold rimmed glasses and this salt and pepper hair and you could just picture him in these old time shows with his suit and his fedora. I mean it was always so easy to picture him that way and just the way he held himself and the way he behaved was just he was the ultimate detective. Um, he was an incredible man. Um, he served on the Wichita Police Force for more than 30 years. He was a commander of the department's homicide unit from 1992 until he retired in 2012. And by that time, he had been a part of more than 600 murder investigations. Um, they included uh, two unrelated quadruple murders. One of them was the car investigations, which we have discussed, and the rape and murder of nine-year-old case that we had discussed. Um, but, of course, by far, which was his most prominent case, was the case of Dennis Rader. And he and Dennis Rader had communicated quite a bit. And Dennis Rader just really thought he had this huge, great rapport with Kenneth Landwehr. Um, Dennis was just this, he had such an ego on him. And Ken, Lieutenant Landwehr just really kind of fed into that. And Dennis thought he had this whole law enforcement background of, him being in the dog catching uh, work and so 
Kenneth Landwehr, Lieutenant Landwehr just really kind of fed into that. And he liked to play these cat and mouse games. And so Lieutenant Landwehr just kind of fed with that. And um, so it was, it's just always kind of interesting. Um, Lieutenant Landwehr and Mr. Raider, like I said, had, they had been exchanging the coded messages. And um, when he was caught, uh, Dennis Raider was really just kind of um, offended that he felt like Ken, Lieutenant Landwehr, I'm sorry, I keep going back to trying to call him Ken, is Lieutenant Landwehr, um, had I lied to him and it's just, it's a really hilarious kind of interrogation. Um, I really wish you guys could see it. It, It's really funny. Um, But born in January 23rd, 1954, Kenneth Landwehr grew up in Wichita where local news reports said he was an Eagle Scout, a high school debate champion, and a devotee of Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes tales. Um, he was also a drinker and an occasional brawler as a teenager, which you could definitely see. <laughs> His father, Lee, worked at Cessna and the aircraft, which is an aircraft company here in Wichita. Uh, we are the air capital of the world. And his mother, Irene, was a homemaker. By his own admission, by Lieutenant Landwehr's own admission, he was a poor student at Wichita State University, though he excelled in algebra and criminal justice, and he had actually considered applying to join the FBI. He instead decided to pursue a career here in law enforcement in 1977, which we are very blessed that he did that, um, after the store where he was working at the time was robbed. He and others in the store were tied up, and one robber stood over him, loading a pistol. No one was killed, but the episode gave Lieutenant Landwehr the experience of being a victim and fostered a compassion for crime victims and their families that he said became his prime motivation in doing his job. Um, And he definitely showed that. Uh, He was very kind and caring with victims, and he definitely empathized and was a very caring person. Um, And then in an interview that... Uh, was done with the New York Times um, at one time. When I did my interview to get on the police department, they always ask you one question. How far do you want to go in the department? And Lieutenant Landwehr responded at that interview, I said, I want to command homicide. Those victims cannot speak for themselves, so that's probably the only reason why I picked homicide. And he, he's just, that was incredible to me. Um, Lieutenant Landwehr was not yet 20 when Mr. Raider's first victims, a family of four named Otero, were killed. He became involved in the BTK case in the mid-80s when Wichita's police chief formed a task force known locally as Ghostbusters to investigate the killings. It was Lieutenant Landwehr, news reports said, who originated the strategy of playing on the killers, demonstrated narcissism, prodding BTK in public statements about the case to communicate ever more frequently with the police. It was he who made sure that the small amount of DNA evidence 
gathered at the Otero crime scene was saved until it was sure to be useful. And after the disc and other evidence pointed to Mr. Rader, it was he who arranged to test the DNA of a relative, Mr. Rader's daughter, to compare with the Otero sample. Upon Mr. Rader's arrest, Lieutenant Landwehr took charge of the interrogation. And when he saw, when he walked into the interrogation room, he looked right at him and his first words are, Raider said to him was, hello, Mr. Landwehr. And it's just really kind of interesting. So we're going to go back to the, but I wanted to give you guys a little bit of background on Lieutenant Landwehr because I know there's always a lot of information about the person who committed the crime. And, you know, you don't really always see a lot of information about the amazing people who bring them in. And Lieutenant Landwehr, um, when we lost him here in Wichita, it was a very sad day. I mean, it, he had struggled with kidney cancer. And so, and I, I'm sure it was just a very, very difficult time for his family, but it was a huge loss to the investigative community because he was an amazing individual and just an incredible person and just so insightful. I, he, he was his own right, an amazing Sherlock Holmes. So, this is the story of how Dennis Rader was caught and almost got away from the perspective of Lieutenant Landwehr. So, this is per Lieutenant Landwehr. Him sending that disc is what cracked the case. If he had just quit killing and kept his mouth shut, we might have never connected the dots. So... Raider was still smarting about the apparent betrayal in the hours after his February 25, 2005 arrest, expressing his shock at the fact police would intentionally deceive him and saying he thought he had a rapport going with Landwehr, whom he referred to by his first name. Um, and let me tell you, he went on about the fact that Ken, which he referred to quite often, but he was devastated about everything else. He, he, the, the thing about Raider, when Raider was arrested, the thing that upset him the most was the fact that Kenneth Landwehr lied to him about tracing this floppy disk. He focused on it. It violated so much. It violated Dennis Raider's code. Dennis Rader had asked him to be honest. He felt like he had a rapport with Kenneth Landwehr and Kenneth Landwehr lied to him. And Dennis Rader became obsessed and fixated about the part about this floppy disk. It is absolutely incredible about this. And so Dennis Rader, um, it's funny, Landwehr um, had said that at the beginning of it, Raider looked him straight in the face and said, I need to ask you, how come you lied to me? How come you lied to me? Word for word is what Raider said to Kenneth Landwehr. 
and Landwehr looked at him straight in the eyes with, I'm sure, his little cocky grin and said, Because I was trying to catch you. And then Landwehr told, uh, responded in an interview, He couldn't get over the fact that I would lie to him. He could not believe that I did not want this to go on forever. Raider had thought this was Batman and the Joker and that they just had this relationship that was going to go on for eternity. That they were just going to constantly cat, you know, cat and mouse and it was just going to go on. And I think he honestly thought that that was their relationship and that it was just going to go on for eternity. And he couldn't believe that Lieutenant Laneware actually wanted to catch him and just put him in jail or Arkham Asylum or however it was in Raider's brain. So, um, Raider referred to the floppy disk again later in the interrogation saying he knew he was taking a big gamble by sending it to the TV station, but he really thought Ken was being honest when he gave me, when he gave me the signal that it can't be traced. The floppy is what did me in, is what Raider said. The idea of going into the interrogation room, Landwehr says, was to get Raider to keep talking and talking. At first, Raider tried to play a cat and mouse game with the detectives again, talking in hypotheticals and referring to BTK again. It's another person. It's not him. It's, it's another person. But once he realized the jig was up, he gave a full confession, recounting in chilling, unemotional detail the cold-blooded torture and murder of 10 people, including a 9-year-old boy and an 11-year-old girl. We just couldn't shut him up, Lieutenant Landwehr said. And Raider just, he felt like this really strange bond with Landwehr and to the police in general. He even remarked at one point that they were fellow law enforcement officers. And Raider, he's actually a code compliance officer in Park City. So not anything like a law enforcement officer. He just really thought he was. Raider talked about his crimes and a host of other subjects in no particular order. He just wanted to try to talk and his talking was more to manipulate the officers. Um, train and also feed his own ego. Um, he just, uh, Lieutenant Landwehr said in an interview that he just felt like Raider was infatuated with himself. Um, Raider got so comfortable during the interview that at one point he told a police officer to put BTK on the lid of his drinking cup before putting it in the refrigerator. I mean, he was that into the name. I almost feel like it would be more cruel to all of us to stop calling him BTK, to take that name away from him. And I think that would be torture to him. He's just Raider. He's just Dennis Raider. Lieutenant Landwehr says that 
at the time that the case had taught him not to be shy about seeking outside help. He singles out the effort of two agents from the FBI Academy's Behavioral Analysis Unit who helped devise an overall strategy for dealing with BTK. He said the agents not only created a personality profile of the killer, but also offered the task force ongoing advice on how to keep the suspect talking without antagonizing him. They also recommended that one person, which ended up to be Lieutenant Landwehr, be the go-between. So focusing on that one person, that person who created that relationship and that be that person. And then the FBI Behavioral Analysis Unit actually suggested questions. And those questions kind of helped guide the interview during the interrogation. So as Landwehr said, we stuck to the plan we set up and it eventually worked because Raider got caught up in his own game and eventually ended up giving himself away. FBI officials refused to make the two agents available for interviews, citing the possibility that they could be called as witnesses in several pending civil suits against Raider by the families of some of his victims. But two former FBI agents who profiled BTK, both experts in the areas of criminal profiling and violent sexual offenders, say Raider is a lot like other serial killers in some ways, but not in others. So as special as Raider wants to think he is and how he's so unique, He's pretty much like most average serial killers in a lot of ways. So retired FBI agent Roy Hazelwood had shared in an interview that one of the agency's original profilers and now a researcher in Fredericksburg, Virginia, says Raider may be the most fascinating serial killer he has ever studied. While most serial killers exhibit at least one type of paraphilic behavior or sexual deviation, Hazelwood says, Raider has at least seven. The most he's ever seen in one person. Hazelwood says Raider also has at least two personality disorders, narcissism and psychopathy that are common among serial killers, including Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, and David Berkowitz, also known as Son of Sam. In layman's terms, Hazelwood says, that means Raider has, among other things, an exaggerated sense of self, a lack of empathy for others, and no feelings of guilt, remorse, or fear. So, Unlike most serial killers, however, Raider went on a spree that lasted an unusually long time. He started killing in 1974 when he was 29 and was planning on another murder at the time of his arrest when he was 59. Also unusual for a serial killer, according to Hazelwood, was the amount of time that passed between his crimes. Most serial killers more frequently than he did... Oh. Sorry, most serial killers kill more frequently than he did, Hazelwood had stated. Spotsylvania, Virginia-based criminologist 
Robert Ressler, another retired FBI profiler who specializes in violent criminal offenders and actually had coined the term serial killer, believes that Raider may be responsible for more than the 10 killings that have been attributed to him. And that's actually become almost a pastime. There is actually a message board in the dark web or whatever it is of people going through different cold cases in Wichita and seeing if they can be attributed to Dennis Raider. Um, my friend's case was one of them. The Krista Martin case was one that people had tried to attribute to Dennis Raider. Um, the MO does not fit. The puzzle pieces do not go together. Um, even though it was within a time period where Dennis Raider was active, it does not fit within the Raider MO. Um, but these people don't just stop for years at a time, as Raider supposedly did, Wrestler says. Another unusual feature of Raider's crimes, according to Hazelwood, is that he communicated so much, so frequently with the police and the media. Raider sent 19 messages in all, 10 of them in the 11 months before his arrest. Most serial killers do not communicate with the authorities, and when they do, it is hardly ever to the extent that Raider did. Hazelwood also found it odd that Raider interacted with and seemed to trust Landwehr so completely. They had such a relationship. Um, if you guys have seen, uh, I can't remember if it was called Mindhunter or, um, but it was the first of the Hannibal movies where he is with um, Edward Norton as Hannibal and Edward Norton and it's the dragon one, but they have like this really go back and forth. It's not the Clary Starling relationship, but it, it's almost like they have that Lieutenant Landwehr and um, Raider have that type of relationship. Um, Hazelwood believed that Landwehr couldn't afford to lie to him because he knew if he did, Raider would cut off communications with him, except about the floppy disk, obviously. Hazelwood, who profiled BTK as an FBI agent in 1984, got some things right and others wrong. He said then, for instance, that BTK had fantasized about committing sadistic acts as a child, had an interest in psychology and criminology, and was an outdoorsman, all of which turned out to be true. But he also said that BTK was articulate, had likely been interviewed by and been cooperative with the task force, and was probably known to the operator of an adult bookstore in the area. All of those things were not correct. Ressler says that Raider, like many serial killers, is a sexual sadist with a vivid fantasy structure. Raider also shares another character trait with many serial killers, Ressler says, in that he took personal items from several of his victims as souvenirs. It helped keep his fantasies alive between the, vic between the crimes. And what got me between that, though, is... So he took those things, but then he also gave several of those things away by giving them to uh, the media. So was when he was giving them to the media, was he reliving it by sending it to the media and knowing other people were touching it? Other people were 
interacting with it? Was that some sort of sexual perversion he was having within that, I wonder? So, Raider also manifested the common serial killer desire to be involved with law enforcement, a wrestler had stated. And when he couldn't become a cop for one reason or another, he got a job as a code compliance officer, which allowed him to carry a badge and gave him authority over people because that's what it's about. It's that control. You know, these guys, they want that control. But it also gave him access to people's homes. I mean, if you guys remember Berkowitz, who shot six people to death and wounded several others in New York City in the late 1970s, he had a job as a security guard, and Gacy, who killed 33 young men and boys in Chicago area in the 1970s, told people he was an undercover police officer and drove a vehicle that looked a lot like a cop car. Well, Ressler also said he was able to view some of BTK's earlier communications as an FBI agent in the late 70s, and says it was obvious that the killer had a strong interest in the criminal justice system because he was so well versed in the details of other serial killers. In fact, Ressler was also profiled, who also profiled the killer at the time, theorized that BTK was a young, unmarried man who was pursuing a career in law enforcement, which, except for Raider's marital status, turned out to be essentially correct. Raider's creation of a secret symbol to authenticate his communications with the police, while unusual, was taken directly from Berkowitz. Because Berkowitz drew a kind of a, an occult symbol on one of his letters to the media, Ressler had mentioned. But unlike Hazelwood, Ressler says BTK's penchant for communicating with the police and the media is pretty typical of serial killers whose egos tend to be so weak that they seek attention for their crimes. To make that point, Ressler cites a passage from one of BTK's letters in which he asks, how many people do I have to kill before I get a name in the paper or some national recognition? Which I got to side with Ressler on that one. Um, it, it, it seems like he was being very needy. He wanted that attention. I mean, even wrestler states, I mean, how plainly is your cry for attention? And while the media would have you believe that serial killers are all loners who can't hold a job and do not form relationships, wrestler says that's not always the case. Serial killers tend to have an above average intelligence and realize that they have to blend. They've got to blend in. They, they've got to be... It kind of reminds me of Dexter. You know, how in the series Dexter, he realizes, even in the recent ones, not a spoiler alert, but, you know, the Christmas sweaters, you know. He knows he's got to do things to look as normal as possible. And Wrestler says, you know, serial killers realize they've got to do things to blend in. I mean, Gacy was married. Bundy had a girlfriend, and they know they've got to do things to blend in with everyone else. And the more things they do to blend in, the better. Because if they are alone, if they don't hold a job, if they do these things, they're going to look out of place. 
Nobody who knows anything about the case believes that Raider wanted to get caught. If he had, they pointed out, he had 31 years to turn himself in, Ressler stated. And he wouldn't have been planning another murder. And that's something I didn't even know until I read this article. I didn't know that he had been planning another murder. So that's terrifying for those of us who live here. Um, He acknowledged that uh, during his confession. Uh, Nor would he have realized his grand scheme, also voiced during his confession, to write a book about BTK and place it in a safe deposit box um, under an assumed name and have it discovered after his death. So, you know, have this massive book and this whole uncovering. The beginning of the end for BTK came in January 2005 when he sent a postcard to a Wichita TV station. So, Bill Thomas Kilman... This alternative identity was the beginning of the end. So when he wanted Wichita to know he was still here, when he had to let them know he was still here, that was the end for him. And it's also the roadside package that he had Um, that turned out to be the cereal box containing a document. It described gruesome details of his first crime, the 1974 murder of a couple and two children, uh, and the murders of a couple and two of their five children. The box also held some jewelry and a doll with a rope around his neck. The doll was tied to a curved PVC pipe, apparently representing one of the victims, an 11-year-old girl. But it was BTK's reference to a package at the Home Depot that gave police their first big break in the case. Because all of that comes back to the floppy disk. And it comes back to the ad. Um, So when they go back to that and they go to the Home Depot, of course they go and what is there? Even though it wasn't, technology is coming forward. And so they go and they look at videotapes. Well, videotapes, there's a black Jeep Grand Cherokee pulling alongside the employee's pickup truck and walking around the vehicle. So they're starting, the police are starting to pull this information together. Um, And then when they got the disc, um, two weeks after the disc arrived at the TV station, along with a gold chain, Um, And then the uh, index cards from BTK, the disc contained one valid file bearing the message, this is a test, and directing police to read one of the accompanying index cards with instructions for further communications. In the property section of the document, however, police found that the file had last been saved by someone named Dennis. They also found that the disc had been used at the Christ Lutheran Church and the Park City Library. Lieutenant Landwehr says Raider had taken pains to delete any identifying information from the disc, but he made the fatal mistake of taking the disc to his church to print out the file because the printer for his home wasn't working. So it's the little things. The little things will get you. It's pretty basic stuff, Landwehr has said, about the reconstruction of the deleted information. 
anybody who knows anything about computers could figure it out. And let me tell you, it was just fascinating at the time when you were seeing these things fall into place. It was absolutely incredible. A simple internet search turned up a website for the church, which identified Dennis Rader as president of the congregation. Police quickly determined that Rader was a code compliance officer in Park City, located his address, drove past his house, saw a black Jeep Grand Cherokee registered to his son Brian in the driveway. From there, prosecutors subpoenaed a tissue sample from a pap smear done on Raider's daughter, Carrie, at a student clinic near Kansas State University in Manhattan, which she had attended five years earlier. DNA tests on that sample showed that Carrie Raider was the daughter of BTK. Any lingering doubts were erased after Raider's arrest when he proudly described in bone-chilling detail the murder of 10 people, including the 11-year-old girl and 9-year-old boy. His recorded confession, which lasted more than 30 hours, filled 17 DVDs. After his arrest, Raider also directed police to what he called his mother load. A drawer in a locked file cabinet at his city hall office where he kept newspaper clippings about the case. Copies of all of his communications, photographs, and other mementos of his victims, and several chapters of the book he was writing, which he called the BTK story. Let me tell you about some of these photographs. I told you we were not going to go for sensationalism. We were not going to do that, but some of the photographs were of Raider dressed in some interesting it the photographs were interesting and I'm going to try to find a way I, I'm not a very technological person but for crime con we're going to go and we are going to have this stuff together and we are going to have our YouTube channel up and I will have some of the BTK evidence up with this podcast. We are also going to have um, an ASL certified interpreter who will be interpreting this sign, uh, the, our podcast for the hearing impaired on our channel. And we'll touch back on this at the end. Sorry, found a rabbit and chased it away again. Um, Sedgwick County Deputy District Attorney, Kevin O'Connor, one of the three prosecutors in the case, say the evidence against Raider was overwhelming. We had DNA. We had his confession. We had the so-called mother load. The case was airtight. Um, experts say Raider inadvertently gave himself away when a computer user deletes data from a floppy disk. Um... It's the electronic equivalent of removing a card from the card catalog of a library. The card may be gone, but the book is still there. A more sophisticated user could probably do a better job of covering his tracks, but a qualified expert with the right set of tools can usually follow even the savviest user's electronic trail almost to the point of the original iron molecules. You have to be pretty good to follow that type of trail, but you have to be really good to get rid of it. That's why there's an entire field of science devoted to computer forensics. 
But O'Connor says police and Lieutenant Landwehr in particular deserve a lot of the credit for bringing the case to a successful conclusion. They collected and preserved DNA evidence when nobody knew anything about DNA. And that was a big thing is knowing ahead of time that the science will be there. They kept BTK communicating, knowing that he might eventually slip up. They resisted the pressure to test the DNA evidence until they had a suspect to compare it with. And they figured out a way to get a profile of Raider's DNA without tipping him off that they were zeroing in on him as a suspect. So, and they were able to get him. So those were all huge things and they brought him in, but a few things that happened and created in Wichita along the way and one of the other things is and I, I'm not going to state a name there was another person that um, there's there's a thing called confirmation bias and I'm going to be bringing it up in another podcast because it has become an out of control thing um, but confirmation bias is when people make an assumption and they and that's happening more and more with podcasts with twitter with facebook people think there's one piece of information that's what it is at the time of this everybody's looking for btk there was a gentleman and somehow something came out that everybody started to assume he was btk the police had gone by there to ask him a question and this was a guy who was a very strong introvert. This is somebody who somebody might call a hermit. This is somebody who could not handle attention. And but everybody got in their head that this person was BTK. So the public descended upon this person's home. They violated their sanctity, their privacy. They doxied them. They did so many horrible things to this person. It was absolutely terrible what Wichitans did to this gentleman. And this gentleman was innocent. This man had done nothing. But it it was absolutely horrible. So I, I just wanted to touch on that because this man was completely innocent. And it was absolutely horrible and this man has since passed and it it was horrible and i just want people to keep in mind a person is innocent until proven guilty there were so many things that the police are doing you need to allow the police to do their job someone is not guilty until they are guilty so btk was brought in and justice was served Dennis Rader was given 10 life sentences and remains at El Dorado Correctional Facility with his earliest parole being set for the year 2080. His heartless spree sparked Stephen King's A Good Marriage novella as well as numerous documentaries. The character ADT Man on Mindhunter is also based on Rader. 
So, unfortunately, he has been a muse of sorts for a lot of evil on a lot of shows. But one thing I would like to request, Dennis Rader requested, demanded to be called BTK. I say, let's take that away from him. Let's take BTK, bind, torture, and kill away from Dennis Rader. He wanted that nickname. Let's take it away. Take away his power. And he is nothing but Dennis Rader. I think that's probably one of the greatest punishments he could get is only to be known from this moment forward as Dennis Rader and nothing more. Give the power to his victims. Take it away from him. Thank you all for listening. Don't forget, I'm still working with Katrina Marshall on her aunt's case, Catherine Katrina Mowry. So if you haven't signed her petition yet on change.org, and I will have the link to it at the end of this podcast, We're also going to have several things at CrimeCon when we're in Vegas next week. If you're going to be at CrimeCon, stop by our booth. I'll be very excited to meet any and all of you. I'm very excited to see Generation Y and True Crime Garage and all the other cool people out there. Um, Of course, all the awesome Dateline people. And um, I am still working on Krista Martin's case here in Wichita. I've put in several requests to the Wichita Police Department for her case files. It should be public record. Put it in. I've actually had other people also requesting it because, you know, the more people who request it, you know, maybe something will happen, but not getting anything. Um, They said that they would get back to us in three days and... We've had no movement. We've had no information. So if anybody who is connected to the Wichita Police Department or anything, guys, we would really like some information. Um, Krista was um, assaulted the week before her murder. And we just want some information. We don't want to do your job. We just want to help. We want to get some information out there. We want to try to help solve her case. It's been a long time and she deserves justice. If there's anyone out there with the media, um, we would like to see an anniversary of her case. We would like to get her case featured in the media so we can get some information out there. Um, Somebody's got to know something. Whoever had found her body, um, whoever had assaulted her the previous week. Um, I was a friend of Krista's. I I, I know some people. I, I may know some information. I've been out of the loop for a while, and so I, I can't find any information. Um, I, I would just like to know. And if there's a tip line, I will do whatever I can to help. So I still go with you die twice. 
You die once when you take your last breath. You die the second time when somebody says your name for the last time. We will not stop saying the names of the loved ones who deserve justice. So help us keep saying their names and help us find justice for all of those out there who deserve it. Thank you all so much for listening and keeping this podcast going. Thanks a lot from Crime Scene and Cupcakes.